This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Welcome to the snowsbest.com podcast. Diving deep into the emotions and experiences that mountain life provides for skiers and boarders from first-timers to elite athletes. With your host, Miss Snow-It-All, Rachel Oaks-Ash. Welcome to the Snow's Best Podcast. I'm Rachel Oaks-Ash, aka Miss Snow-It-All, and today's guest has had quite the adventurous life. Currently the head backcountry guide for Threadbow Backcountry Tours, Alex is a qualified snowboard instructor who's worked around the globe from South Korea to Japan and beyond. When she's not in the snow, she's chasing outback trails in search of adventure. In 2021, she found it on the shores of the Han River, about two and a half hours helicopter ride from civilization and bitten by a deadly mulga snake. Though she didn't know that was what it was at the time. No spoilers, though obviously she lived just to tell the tale here today. Here to talk to us about risk and exposure, welcome to the Snow's Best Podcast, Alex Parsons. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Have you just come in from a a backcountry ski or snowboard today? Not today. I actually had the day off and I forced myself to not do anything because I'm horrendous at just going on adventures even on my days off and never resting. Have you always been like this, Alex? I think so. Um, even when I was a kid, like we did a lot of bushwalking growing up and then moved into a lot of sports. I used to do a lot of martial arts as a kid and just really enjoy sort of pushing myself. And then when I found snowboarding, it was such a great way to just explore the mountains in lots of different ways. I feel I always have been this way. So when you were a kid, though, and doing martial arts, did you take a lot of risks? I think about this and I think it's not super usual for someone to go into like competitive fighting and like my mom would just be so worried for us all the time because when you're in those fighting situations someone's really trying to knock you out that's how you win the game and get the most points and I think yeah that is I guess a risky situation but I like to look at risk in a very structured sort of way and try and reduce those risks and martial arts is kind of like chess on speed and I really enjoy that approach to risk of being like okay yes this is dangerous but How can we make it work? How can we simplify it and set up systems to approach it in the best way possible? So are you looking for the checkmate? I think so. And I think I just really love being able to master something that's really complex. I find that's really common in my whole life. It's like, what can I find that's really complex, both physically and mentally, and try and master that? And how has martial arts helped you tackle risk in the backcountry? I think it's given me an interesting mindset that... uh, We need to control our mindset and to be able to handle these like external factors and also being extremely organized when it comes to adventures, because I love setting up systems and lists and figuring it all out and taking something that is uncontrollable in some ways and trying to at least curb it a little bit and control it just a little bit. I'm one of those really horrendously chaotic people who um, relies on other people to make those lists, which is why I'm (laughs) always going out with exceptionally qualified guides around the world and hoping they've made the list, which puts me in danger because I haven't done the list and puts the other people in my group in danger because I haven't done that list. Now, it took me a while to realise the risk I was taking wasn't just impacting me, it was impacting everybody in my group. How do you manage that as a backcountry guide? In terms of like managing the risk in the lists? And yeah, no, the risk of like everybody, because really it's the common denominator. Mm. It's the lowest common yeah. denominator that's going to put you in a 
a dangerous situation, isn't it, when you're in the back? Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah, and that's it. It's like you're not just responsible for yourself, but as a leader, as a guide, yeah, you do need to look out for everyone. And often there are people that don't come very prepared and you can try and set up as much as possible by like, you know, having things on the website and sending out emails and having those communications beforehand. But I also recognize people are in holidays and they don't always want to do the reading. But that's why we do set up when we meet the guest and spend lots of time being like, all right, let's do the gear checklist. And I still, to this day, have a little notebook in my top pocket. I whip it out and I say, all right, do you have this, 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 this? How are you feeling today? What have you eaten today? This is the plan for the day. And really, you can read those people, how they're moving, um, what their gear is, and understand, is this going to work out? Yeah. And honestly, it's okay as a guide to say, this isn't appropriate for you today. Let's give you an alternative. And look, we have had to do that occasionally. It doesn't happen very often. But if that person is going to endanger others, because maybe they're really hungover, maybe they don't quite understand that they are going to be hiking pills. You know, sometimes people think it's a cat skiing operation. It's not. People do have to hit that sort of standard before we take them out because it is also our lives and our safety. And honestly, guide safety comes first because then you can look after everybody else. I find risk really interesting when you look back, particularly when you were younger, at when you thought you weren't taking risk, but when you your knowledge increases and you look back and you think, I cannot believe I'm not dead. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like every guide, every person that's ever done backcountry has yeah. these stories and I'm sure you have them too. But for me, it was uh, my first ever full season in Japan and that's where I did my first little dabbling into backcountry. And do you think I had the proper equipment? No, absolutely not. Was I dropping off into back bowls because someone had told me to go there or someone said, hey, follow me. I've done this before. Absolutely, I would follow them. And it's only afterwards that you do your AST1s or your Ops1 and you're like, damn, I could have gone so horrendously wrong. And people have died in those places who don't have the right gear. Yeah, you just get lucky, honestly. And then hopefully pretty quickly you go, you know what, I really need to switch on, figure this out, figure out the systems, do the courses, get the right knowledge, and then we'll go there. (laughs) Japan's an interesting place though, isn't it? Because really there doesn't seem to be a uniform avalanche uh, advisory across the whole country. A lot of people are cowboys. A lot of people will just get powder crazy and go into powder frenzy, not understand how to read terrain, not understand they're falling into traps and just go for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Mm. And it's yeah. quite, And there's also a lot of unqualified guides just taking people out. Well, that's true because there's no standard over in Japan. In you know Canada, obviously, there's a lot of standards. I mean, we could even say it's similar about Australia. There's no particular standard that is something that we're trying to change. But we're lucky that the the hazards are quite low in Australia. But in Japan, not always as much. So yeah, you're right. It is a bit of a, a cowboy situation. You really need to do your homework on your guides and your programs. And snow immersion is probably one of the biggest issues in Japan, not just avalanche, any kind of snow immersion, really. Absolutely. And that's something I used to worry about with my guests as I just came back from a guiding season in Japan. I would worry about that so much, not necessarily avalanches, but literally just falling over on low angle terrain and not being able to get up. And if I can't get to them in time. And that's why like having a tail guide is also really important. And being on a snowboard, that can be quite challenging. Now we've established what you think is risk <laughs> to a certain degree. <laughs> controllable <laughs> think, risk. Controllable <laughs> risk. How prepared were you before you went out to, where was it, Mount Barnett to Fitzroy Crossing? Where is that? Yeah, so it's in um, Western Australia. It's quite north. So, you know, we flew into Broome and then from there we got a chartered private flight to a place near Mount Barnett and then dropped the boat in there and then started sort of in like little rivulets and then it got to bigger and bigger rivers and then got on to the 
Han, which then goes onto the Fitzroy River. And, you know, this one, I feel like in some ways I was really prepared because physically I went to my sister, who's a personal trainer, and she wrote me a whole program so I could get fit. And I was like, look, I'm paddling. I'll be out there for 10 to 12 days. I need to be really strong in my core, my arms. What can you do for me? So really fit there. But there were some things that I think were outside of my control and I'm so used to being in control and the lead <laughs> guide and all of this sort of stuff. And uh, I was like, you know what? This is an environment that I'm not used to. It's incredibly hot. It's the wet season. There's going to be rain. There's bugs. You're going to be living in your underwear basically the whole time. In those ways, it was a really unfamiliar environment. And I was dating the the lead guide at the time there. And that's sort of how I ended up there. I mean, like, yes, I want to do this adventure and I'll follow you. So you did it for love. A little bit, yeah. Did you do it because you <laughs> thought he'd like you more? Oh, no. Oh, no. I think he would like me either way, hopefully. Okay. No, I never believe in doing things to <laughs> make people like you. <laughs> but I think I wanted the adventure, and I think I had that that level of trust. And I do remember in the, the process of, like, getting organized, again, I'd be like, okay, do we have maps? Do we have a first aid kit? And I remember asking, like, can I see your first aid kit? Can I see what's in it? And he was like, don't worry about it. He said, if you want, you can bring a few spare Band-Aids, but I've got it. And I remember thinking, like, oh, it makes me so uncomfortable, and I just have to, like, trust somebody else. And in the end, I did bring a small first aid kit of my own, including an extra snake bandage. Oh, that's good. Why wouldn't he show you what was in his medical kit? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was just like he's done it so many times. He's got it dialed. You know, I'm just along for the ride. But yeah, I'm definitely someone that likes to take control of things and know exactly the specifics. And yeah, I think it was a bit of a leap of faith for me and to be like, okay, I do need to just take my hands off the wheel a little bit and trust that you are experienced in this place. And it's not my place to be the lead guide here. So talk us through the first couple of days before the snake bit you. Yeah, so it was, um, I got three days in and they were so challenging, so challenging. I think it's also worth noting that just to get to Western Australia was such a challenge in itself because this was during COVID. So this is 2021 in February and Western Australia was pretty locked up. So speaking about risk, this seems probably maybe a bit crazy to some people, but not to me. But I decided, I was like, well, I need to get two weeks in a green zone before I can get to Western Australia. New South Wales at that point where I live was like an orange or red zone. You know, we had a lot of COVID cases, but the ACT was a green zone. So I was like, okay, sick. So what I'll do is I'll spend two weeks in the ACT, but I couldn't have much interaction with people that had been in New South Wales. So I was like, great, I'll solo camp for two weeks straight and then I'll fly there. So anyway. Is that Perfect what you sense. did? Did you solo camp for Absolutely, absolutely where? I did. Yeah. Where did you camp? In the Magic National Park. Okay. So I just picked I booked out different national parks, the campsites there. I saw like one friend who lived in um the ACT, but otherwise I just hung out by myself and had a sick time. Like honestly, I love that stuff. Yeah. So I think it's good for the soul. Arrived and then we had to wait for a weather window um to get this chartered flight. Were you able to fly direct from Canberra to WA, were you? It was going to go to Perth and then I was going to fly up to Broome. But at the last minute, there was a COVID case in Perth. And so they shut down the airport. So (laughs) instead, I had to figure out, I think I decided I changed all my flights. I went from ACT, so Canberra, up to Darwin and then flew across the top there. And all last minute, I was like, oh, my God, I need to book some accommodation. And, you know, just flying at that time was really challenging. But, yeah, eventually arrived in Broome. Happy days. And then we had to wait for a weather window for this flight because, yeah, it's a tiny little plane. They needed to have clear weather. And honestly, it took quite a bit of time and we couldn't risk not having the good weather. They said, we'll fly if 
we can try to get out there. But he said, if the clouds come in, if we can't see, we have to turn around and then that's your money gone. And we would right. each dropped like a few grand on this yep. like specific charter flight. And we're like landing on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, eventually we got out there. And then the first day we had quite some ground to cover and we're learning sort of paddle strokes and it's hot and it's spiders that drop from the trees and like it's intense, but it's beautiful. And the first day, I'm pretty sure I got heat stroke straight away um, because we've been going for like seven <laughs> hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I, at the end, so we got to our campsite, but then there was this big like red cliff and we had to carry all of our gear and go from the boat up and down, up and down, carrying these big barrels to set up our camp for the night. And I think that just finished me off. I had a big, big day. Like all of us had had a massive day. Um, but I do remember just like going, like starting to feel really sick, like I was going to throw up and feeling kind of nauseous and lightheaded and going to lie down by like a little fresh water system and trying to like cool off a bit. And then kind of woke up a little while later. I was like, damn, did I just pass out? Like that is not ideal. Heat stroke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was <laughs> like, idea. this is day one, yeah. day one. And we're not doing well. <laughs> you know, I'm a snow person. <laughs> How many of you were there? So it's myself, it was Jed, the paramedic, John and his partner, who's lovely. And it's Lockie, John and Harris, the six of us all up. Okay, so two women, four men. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. it. And was anybody else suffering from this first day? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, everyone was suffering, but Jana and I went to sort of lie down together. And we really, like, she struggled a lot with the heat too and was really vocal about that. And so we bonded straight away. We're like, damn, this is hard. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was day one. And then day yeah. two, we started hitting waterfalls. So this is all new to me, which is part of the appeal. It's like, man, I have never done rafting before. So you'd never <laughs> gone whitewater rafting before? Nope. And now you're in the middle of nowhere whitewater rafting for the first time in your life? Correct. And what grade rapids were they? Oh, I couldn't tell you, but uh, some of them definitely had some high consequence. Um, and there were a couple <laughs> that, like, the, the guides lying down because we couldn't go over it. Yep. <laughs> then there was one that they tried to ride down, just the two guys that were river guides, and the thing flipped and then all of our gear, like, exploded everywhere. We're like, oh, God, we need that for the next 10 days. Did you get it but back? But they got it. Yeah, okay. they got it back. Yeah, yeah. So they were very talented. So day two, I was really – starting to find my groove and learning how the rivers worked and learning to paddle and like be a really like strong team. We were starting to sort of work together really well. And then day three, I was like, cool, I've got my rhythm. I'm sweet. I'm figuring out my systems. Like how do I stay cool? How do I look after like my sunscreen and like, what do I wear? How much water do I need? How much hydrolyte do I need? What's my food intake? All these sort of things that I really enjoy, like as a guide and like doing my own backcountry adventures, I like to sort things out. And even in adverse situations, I like to figure out how I can make it work for me. And I was starting to get that sort of roll on and be like, okay, now I feel good enough that that night, the third day, I was like, cool, I'm good to cook everyone dinner because I've got my energy. I've sorted myself out. I'll make dinner. You guys chill out and went for a big adventure by myself and found all these sick waterfalls and big boab trees and went swimming and just like such a stunning place. Like Mm. so amazing. So few people have ever been to this place. It's magical. Just big red rocks everywhere and boab trees. It's massive. The energy of the history. Yes. Everything there. That's it. Yeah. So really strong. Absolutely. Like the sort of first law in like country is like so strong, the feelings there. And it's, yeah, it's such a special place to hear the indigenous people there and we were really careful to pay our respects to that but part of the reason that we were there 
was also to like bring attention to that river because they're looking into that river and they're trying to think about like can we frack it and can we direct the water to farms and things and there's yeah it's such a special important river to the local people and also has some species there that are incredibly endangered so there's like a what is that, freshwater sawfish that mm-hmm. lives there nowhere else in the world it's wild so we wanted to bring attention also um, to this river it wasn't just about adventure and to get some media and footage and stuff to use in future campaigns to protect the river it was important so now we're on day three (laughs) we're on day three (laughs) day three of survivor day three of survivor right okay yeah yeah and yeah it's a bit of a shame because i really felt like i was starting to get it together that day yeah and then you know we had our dinner and that night i think was the first night that i had not slept in like the sort of mesh over tent thing Mm -hmm. because they were weren't enough to go around and I think I'd had one the first two nights and I was like and I remember having this conversation and being like no you guys take it I've slept in it the past couple of nights I'm happy to sleep out tonight you know lo and behold mm. that didn't work out very well so yeah it was really quite early in the night it was only about nine-ish I was asleep and god so hot you're just sweating all night it's awful yeah I just woke up to this really sudden just like like a thick, like a thwack on my toe. Like it was the impact that got me first and then the pain. And I just like sat up and was like, what the hell was that? Just out of nowhere. And like, I'm kind of looking around and like, it's just dead silence. I'm like, was that a dream? What was that? I was like, no, I can feel this pain in my toe. I can feel this. And I always sleep. I tend to have like first aid kit, head torch, PLB is generally how I do things. And so I was like, okay, head torch here. boom, And I just had like a very thin sleeping bag liner on, linen almost mm. just really thin. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to roll that down. And then, yeah, I just saw my right toe and just the most perfect puncture wounds that you could imagine with just this little trickle of blood. And there was just no doubt in my mind. I was like, yeah, I've been bitten by a snake and I need to deal with this very quickly. And there was no snake around that I could see. I kind of swung my torch around. I was like, can I identify this thing? Yeah, but then I was like, all right, I need to get very, very serious very quickly because the chances are that this is not a friendly snake being in Australia and being in this area. So, yeah, I woke up the head guide and, you know, he was groggy and just like, gosh, what? And I was like, I, I just, I need you to listen to me. I need you to concentrate. I've been bitten by a snake. I need a compression bandage right now. Luckily, all of us were on the same page and we knew how to deal with snake bites because I had actually organized a wilderness first aid course in January that year because I knew we were going on this trip and I just wanted to have that everyone on the same page. He was a bit confused and then I woke up uh, my friend John and said the same thing. I was like, I need you to wake up. I need you to get the first aid kit. I need a compression bandage right now. And then they sort of went and got the gear and I was like, okay, my mind is thinking, I... I'm not sure what's going to happen next. I'm not sure what kind of snake it is, but I need to bring my heart rate down. I need to reduce my breathing rate. I need to stay really calm and I'm just going to lie down, not move and put myself in the recovery position because chances are like I might pass out, I might throw up. So I'm just going to lie down and make this really simple. Yeah. And then I guess the ride began. Oh yeah. The ride did begin, didn't it? So (laughs) did you feel while you were doing that, before we get into that ride, did you feel that that distracted you from what had actually happened? If I was bitten by a snake, most people, there are two ways you, 
you either go into control mode and therefore yeah. I can manage this, I can manage myself out of this death experience or I'm going to panic and I'm going to hand over my survival to somebody else. You actually took control of your survival. Yeah, absolutely. I knew that the most important things were like, yes, I can delegate that whole compression bandage sort of thing. But the most important thing in my mind was like, I need to keep my heart rate low and just stop this from spreading as much as I can. And that's all in me. That's all internal. No one else can calm me down. Only I can calm me down. But how did you know how? Because people always talk about, you know, if you are in a particular situation, you know, a snake bite in particular, um, do not panic. If you're caught in a rip, and you're out, you know, being circled by a shark, do not panic. <laughs> so how do you keep that cortisol from surging through your veins? Because from my understanding in snake bite, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's actually not the blood that transfers the venom. It's your lymph nodes and your lymph glands. That's right. Which is why you That's have to right. compress. Yeah. That's exactly right. How did you stop? How did you know to calm down? How did you know how to breathe? How did you know to bring it all back down to this moment? Yeah, I guess a lot of it has to do with that martial arts background, being in very intense environments in fights. And like, you know, you train for that and then you're in the fight itself. And knowing that you're going to perform your best if you can just sort of like reduce your arousal levels a little bit um, and stay calm because you have to have that like clarity of mind. Because when I think back to my fighting days, I wasn't always like the strongest or the fastest, but I was generally the most strategic. And so I think that came into play here. I was like, okay, I need to get really strategic here and figure this out. We already know from wilderness first aid what needs to happen and like what's going to work for me. And like, okay, well, breathing. Changing your breathing is going to be a really easy way to like change your nervous system and relax that. And so I'm going to go some nice yoga breathing and relax. Say I need to relax my muscles. So I like visually went through from head to toe, relaxing those muscles and trying to chill out. And, you know, let's do some positive affirmations like you're doing great. Let's just keep breathing. Let's stay really still. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I'd be like, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Um, did you think through any of this? Like at what point, because first of all, it was after dark, wasn't it? So what was the chance yeah. of a helicopter coming? First of all, tell me that. About zero. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And when, and when you it got to 12 this? o'clock, mm. look, we made contact pretty early as you would with emergency services. And we were lucky that Jed, the paramedic, he got on satellite phones, but it was pretty devastating to me. It was about midnight. So I've already survived a couple of hours at this stage, which is extremely challenging. And they said the helicopter won't be able to come until morning. And I really remember thinking, I was like, all right, so I've probably got at least eight hours until I have any sort of medical care. Like I am really on my own. The chances of surviving this are already extremely low. And I really had to sort of realize it's like, realistically, I'm probably not going to make it out of this. Realistically, the chances are that this is the end of my story. And, you know, I have to sort of frame the past of my life in that way that I am now at the end of my story and I need to make peace with that and I need to process that and do everything I can to sort of like be okay with this. But it doesn't mean I'm going to give up. I'm still going to stay calm. I'm still not going to move. And keep in mind, that was incredibly challenging because the pain would just ramp up and ramp up and ramp up. And I could feel this venom started in the toe, but then it would progress. And even though they got compression bandages on multiple I could feel it just burning. My God, it was so painful. It would move into my ankle and it would slowly just creep up into my calf and then it would get to my knee and then it started going above my knee. And I remember thinking like, okay, I know that I've got a lymph node in my groin. Chances are when it gets there, 
it'll probably get to my vital organs. And honestly, that's probably when things didn't go really, really sideways for me. And I had to sort of think about all these things. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, what am I going to feel? Am I going to feel really sick? Am I going to pass out? Am I going to vomit? Am I going to start bleeding out of my eyes? Like, I don't really know. Like, that's terrifying enough. But yeah, trying to manage this pain and, you know, keep in mind also that, you know, being a, a snowboarder and a fighter and all these sorts of things, like I've had some pretty painful experiences. Like I've snapped my Achilles tendon. I've had chronic back pain for a while that ended my Taekwondo career. Um, yeah, I've done some really horrendous, horrendous injuries, but this was by far the worst pain I've ever experienced. The sort of pain where you cannot put a thought together in your brain. Like all you have is pain, just white noise through your brain. So trying to stay calm and, like the natural reaction is like tense up with that, of course, you know, yeah. and just trying to like be like, okay, relax again, relax again. And so, yeah, I really came back to that sort of martial arts knowledge, which I'm so grateful for. And one of those sort of strategies, apart from the breathing, because it got to the point where the breathing was not cutting it. It <laughs> sounds like labor. And then <laughs> when they say like, just breathe, just pant, I just pant. <laughs> I haven't had a child either. That's just me watching TV, but go on. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it got to the point, like I had all these strategies and, you know, same with like when you're out in the backcountry, if you're feeling pretty tired, you can like count and, you know, breathe and put your mind into like, I don't know, a part of your body and think about what you're feeling and be present and all these sort of strategies. I'll try one after the other and it just was not cutting it because the pain was so immense. And so I sort of came back to one that I remembered. I'd read in a book called Zen in the Martial Arts and I'd read it a billion times as a kid. And it was about putting your mind somewhere else. So not in the present moment, but putting it it into a memory. I try this. I was like, I need to like take my mind deep into a memory and think about every little minute detail. And the first time I messed it up because I picked a memory that was too emotional, which was, oh, I'm going to get sad thinking about it, but like patting my cat. And I was thinking about patting my little cat and his cute little ears and all the fur. But unfortunately, my cat had passed away not long ago. And so I was like, I got really upset. And then I was like, boom, I was back in the pain. I was just, I couldn't keep it together. You know, all my muscles were tensing. I was like, all right, let's give it another go. Let's bring it back to the Taekwondo Dojang. And I was like, what does it feel like to step your feet onto the mats? What does it smell like? You know, are you wearing your uniform? Like look down at your uniform. What does it look like? What does it feel like on you? What are you thinking about? And that is the memory that got me through. And I could put my mind into that memory and stay there and that gave me this sort of space, this little bubble to be away from the horrendous pain that I was in and just give myself a bit of a break. Did you feel when you said, I, I think this is the end of my story, this is how my story ends, which is really sad. <laughs> yeah, it's horrendous. Yeah, it's really sad. Did you feel that you had done enough in your life? Did you want to give messages to your family or did you just – experience that and then put that aside like how did you work with that no I I really processed that one and I remember thinking like god all the things I thought I was going to do like I won't get to do and like but I said okay well well, let's have a little walk through my life and I was like you know what I'm actually really stoked that I went to all these different countries and I met so many people and I saw so many beautiful places and then I did feel so awful for my family that they were going to have to deal with the news of my death and I just I felt so guilty and I was like my mom and my dad and my sister are going to be so upset and I can't believe I've done this to them but there was one particular moment where basically what I felt was happening was that I was really reaching the end because my blood pressure suddenly dropped which is that you feel kind of like cold and 
yeah, you kind of feel like you've just been dunked in water and you feel a bit dizzy and and I started to feel my heart rate pick up. But then I also felt really far away from the situation. I was like, oh no, like this is, this is really happening. And I was like, all right, we just need to tackle this head on. Um, and I, I remember the things that I really thought about, I was like, take a deep breath, think of your family, take a deep breath, think of your family. And yeah, I was, I genuinely, genuinely was like, this is, this is the end of my life. Yeah. <sighs> it's pretty full on, isn't it? So thankfully for all of us, was it the end of your life? No. How did you get through the night? What happened next? Yeah, I think at that moment, you know, I told Jed, the paramedic, and I was like, I like, I'm going downhill. And he came over and took my pulse and he kind of just sat there for a while and he was like, your pulse is okay. And I was like, all right. And then it just, everything seemed to just sort of plateau for me. And I'm not sure if my body was just processing things or I'm, I'm really not sure um, what was happening there, but yeah, I seemed to stabilize. And this is like the early hours of the night by this stage. And I've just been going downhill and downhill and then yeah, kind of stabilized there. But you've still got another 10 hours before you're going to be picked up. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so I'm like, all right, well, now we have to get through the night. And so the team set up a timer for every 15 minutes to check my vitals there. And so it was meant to be different team members, but it ended up being my partner at the time and, oh. and lead guy there. Every 15 minutes, the alarm would go off and they'd check and be like, you still alive? Yeah, do you need some water? And I'd sort of almost half fall asleep, but not really. And then the 15-minute alarm would go off and it would go off again and again and again. And the whole time I would just sort of, I didn't really want to fall asleep. I'm not sure if I did, but I wanted to stay switched on. I remember telling myself, like, just stay switched on, stay strong, yeah. like, don't give up, keep your heart rate down, do not move. And so, yeah, it's like the hours just sort of really slowly ticked on the longest night of my life, just 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And I'd be like, all right, now it's 4 a.m., like, you're doing well. Stay switched on, stay calm, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And then eventually the light of day started to come and I was like, oh my God, you might have just got through this. But we weren't out of the woods yet because then they got back onto emergency services and they said, we still can't get a helicopter. And that's when I started to almost just crack it because I was like, my main goal was just get to the morning, just get there and you will be okay. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case and there was still time to wait. Yeah, and I remember just like just almost panicking at this stage because I'm just like, I'm done. Like I'm mentally done. I've used every last little <laughs> corner of my mind to beat this and I'm so, so done with this. I'm so exhausted and in pain and I just need to go to a hospital and be out of this situation. And I, I couldn't yet. So, yeah, and I just started getting pretty delirious. And I remember I'd been like, oh, like, I'll jog it off, guys. It'll be so fun. And be like, John, can you give me a sponge bath? Just like losing it. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining you weren't able to go to the bathroom the whole entire time. No, no, I did go. It's probably too much information. But, uh, yeah, I went that morning, but I couldn't move, you know, no. just had to like myself and I was like god this is horrendous but so we're here we saying, are. but it's the least of your worries really that 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 humiliation <laughs> of being in front of oh, everyone yeah. because I mean you know you were potentially dying so yeah absolutely thankfully you didn't what I find most fascinating before we get to the actual chopper arriving what I find most fascinating about this entire experience is how much you remember everything in the minute of everything in such detail mm. when a lot of people would have just disassociated to deal with the trauma yeah that's a good point. I think 
because being a writer, like in the days after, I wrote everything down, like every single thought process, because that's how I process things. And then eventually, you know, those writings became a blog article and it got published in Wild Magazine, which was lovely. But, you know, I really had all those details written down because that's just how I process things. And then being able to talk about it came a bit later, you know, because, yeah, it's still really stressful to talk about, honestly. You can still feel a heart rate going oh, up and be like, it's yep. okay, we're safe now. You're safe. <laughs> this is the thing, isn't it? Because how long did it take you before you were able to actually talk about it openly with people? I guess probably about a year or so, yeah. And I was still recovering for a really, really long time, both mentally and physically, but I had horrendous fatigue, um, so much so that the doctor that I kept seeing, she said, I'm going to coin the term snakebite fatigue because it's acting like chronic fatigue and you're not getting any better. Oh, that's not great, is it? So the chopper did eventually come and you it got did, taken it away. Did which is hilarious. This big Kiwi guy comes out. He's like, oh, this campsite is sick. Oh, you want to get in the chopper? And then it turns out I couldn't move. <laughs> and they had to stretch me across because I thought, I don't know, when you lie down for I was like, oh, no, I'll just be able to like, get up. sit up or something. And I just, I could not do anything. I got to the point I couldn't even like open a water bottle. I was like, oh, my God, my fingers are not moving. Nothing is working. And, yeah, they just sort of like lifted me up, put me in the, after doing the stretcher, which they were very talented at, and we had practiced in wilderness first aid. Yeah, put me in the helicopter and the, the Kiwi guy, he was like, is she going to fall out? Because there's no doors in this helicopter. And I was like, oh, it will be fine. Please go. <laughs> just get me, get me <laughs> to a hospital. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, it was about two, three hours into the hospital. So 16 hours until uh, I was in medical care. Yeah. How long before? you found out what kind of snake it was that bit you? Look, that's still like we will never know for sure. Know. But it was when I was not recovering very well, I sent an email to this world-renowned toxicologist in Australia and was like, hey, these are my symptoms. Um, and he's like, oh, the only snake that gives you like massive swelling and massive pain is the mulga. It was really hard because they couldn't – we'd like done a swab and they apparently don't take – identification swabs anymore in the hospital and they were really really surprised at how alive I was and they they kept saying like no it's probably not a snake bite maybe it was a spider maybe it was something else because you're very okay and I was like well I kind of I think I really really do know what it is and then they talked to a toxicologist and they got my bloods back and then they were like oh no actually was a snake and yes you were envenomated because then there was the question of well maybe it was a dry bite and it hasn't like envenomated you and I was like oh no like I know exactly what I felt yeah and they were just like you're right and now I have it on a piece of paper snake bite envenomation there we go but didn't get anti-venom oh because it was too late yeah it was a funny one I think we just assume that you get anti-venom and that's the end of it yeah, but, I always um, assume that too I, I think know, that right? comes from the days of watching TV <laughs> what do you attribute your survival too because thing is they were so shocked what do you think it was? yeah yeah i think it was a combination of things and look i don't know how much venom the snake put in maybe i got lucky and it didn't get much in me but i know i was incredibly fit at the time you know i'd worked very very hard to be fit so that i can attribute to being yeah just really strong like and i just finished my first backcountry guiding season so my quads were massive you know i was doing hiking i did like 300 k's of hiking just before that just really really fit and then yeah also just being able to stay calm and like that's what they say that how the original people used to deal with snake bites was just lie down in the shade and sort of chill out for a bit stay <laughs> so calm. it's possible to survive yeah so that's I, it stay so calm to me it sounds like your mind had a lot to do with it absolutely yeah yeah i think so just staying calm as much as you could <laughs> thank god it worked how have you dealt with the post-trauma 
Well, I went to see a psychologist and I just like booked that in. And I was like, I really don't want to deal with any PTSD symptoms. Like I'm sure there will be some. Oh, you think you were. can control that, do you? You think you can control that bit too? Okay. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but having said that, I'd had some PTSD symptoms maybe two years earlier when I'd unfortunately been a first responder on an incident on the roads and had seen a man die at my feet. And I hadn't dealt with that well. And so I made a promise to myself that I would go seek professional help and I would be a lot more forgiving of how I dealt with things. And like strange things are going to happen. You're going to have shit days you're going to have some weird reactions and not feel okay sometimes. I feel really stressed and I just made a pact with myself like, we're going to probably experience some symptoms and you're just going to be kind and accept them and it's going to be okay. I feel if you work in the adventure world or skiing and you do it for long enough, you're going to end up with some post-trauma of of some description. I think that's true. I mean, you know my story of when I was skiing with the instructor who died in front of us and the post-trauma crept up to me in a way that you don't even realize you're standing there and you're thinking why am I suddenly having a panic attack why am I searching for the door why have I burst into I was in a helicopter and I had a full-blown panic attack filled with 11 strangers heli skiing I had this full-blown panic attack and then I was going down a hill skiing down a hill and somebody went cliff and it's all about the safety right so somebody said cliff now under normal circumstances I'll just go okay cool I won't ski over there I'll just ski over here there's a cliff over there but this time or you hear the words cliff and you go, oh, my God, I'm not safe. So I sat down in the middle of <laughs> – I just sat down in the middle of this backcountry run and the tail guide was like, you're right. I'd already told him about what had been going on for me. And I said, no, I'm actually not. I'm going to have to go down here on my ass. And he's like, well, I don't think that's probably the best idea. I'm like, <laughs> well, no, I think it's the only idea. I don't know how else to do this. And there was a, the, the yeah. crew of people at the bottom near the chopper waiting for me, watching me go down on my ass, thinking – what's happened to this woman? What's going on? But it was an absolute post-trauma reaction. That took quite a long time to to get to the point where I started to feel safe again. What kind of skills have you implemented to manage your own post-trauma? I think being really aware of um, like tension in my core and how my breathing is being affected, just being really bodily aware and being patient with myself because it's really only actually been the last, just speaking about you know, that gentleman that passed away and thinking about how I dealt with that, it's like I would still get stressed and tense every time I passed that spot. And so with this whole snake bite, I found some of the triggers for me were things related to, sounds a bit funny to say, but like coffins or death or things like that because I had had so much time when I was lying on those rocks to think like, oh, my God, people are going to have to deal with my body. They're going to have to wrap up my body and transport it somehow and my parents are going to have to identify and do it. Like I really had time to think about all those processes and that just haunted me for so long. And so I remember just one night, I don't know, watching TV or something and there was like some music video with like a coffin, so simple. It just so triggered me of being like, my God, I'd already imagined myself being in that coffin and my family having to deal with that. And yeah, you just feel like you're getting really tense and you're not like breathing. Yeah. And just sort of being like, you know, it's okay. This is happening. We know what this is. 
we're just going to sort of change the scene. And I think just reminding yourself that you're safe now. You're safe now. You're not there anymore. And really trying to bring myself back. Yeah. And I, I found I would like get sort of trapped in memories and be back there and really need to bring myself to the present moment and be like, just take a breath. We're here. It's this year. You're okay. That's part of post-trauma though, that constant flashbacks, constant memory, constant yeah. flashback. It was interesting what you said about going past the place where the man died and that would trigger you. Have you read the book yeah. The Body Keeps the Score? Which talks no. about, Oh, you've got to read this book. It's so good. I actually listen to it on audiobook. It's a lot easier than actually to read it, okay. to be honest. This is quite dense. It talks about the memory cells within your body and how, Ooh. well, yeah, like, I mean, I was skiing in Park City where this guy had died and we had tried to save him. And yeah. about three months later, I was skiing with some friends, hadn't skied at Park City since or for a couple of months, skiing some, with some friends. We were having a grand old time. And all of a sudden, my body started shaking and I couldn't stop shaking. Right. And we got down to the base lodge and they're like, why are you shaking? I said, I don't know. It just happened up there. And then I went, oh, my God, that's where that guy uh... died. So my body knew before I knew. And that's what this book is about. The body keeps the score. Absolutely. How has the backcountry helped you? I think it's given me a lot of space to sort of like be back in my body and to like, the backcountry just gives you so much freedom and so much time to, I don't know, just like have a moment with yourself and to be like, well, how am I actually feeling? I feel like I check in with myself when I'm in the backcountry. I have that space so, yeah, I feel like it's been really good to be like, how am I feeling about everything? And how are you dealing with this, Alex? And let's have a little solo time and let's have a little chat and a check-in. Um, so I think that's helped a lot. But also like coming back to physical health um, has been yeah. really good because I think it was only four months after that snake bite that I was offered the position of head guide. Right. And I was not physically well at all. And my sort of return to health, it took so long. And even through that whole season, my first season as head guide, I was so struggling and really didn't know how to talk to people about it. This fatigue, this massive fatigue I was feeling all the time, but slowly, slowly got better and sort of focusing on my health and getting strong again. Yeah, the backcountry was just like a healing place for me, honestly. Understanding how to talk to people is really tough because often, I mean, how many people would understand the situation you've been through? Finding people that have had those life-affirming or survival moments that were life-threatening. Uh, you know, there's yeah. more people than we realise, but discussing it, it really makes you quite vulnerable to people that don't get it, who, who don't give you the support you need. Did you find yourself yeah. telling the wrong people? Not necessarily the wrong people, I, but people yeah. that weren't able to support you. Well, yeah, I think there was definitely the case where, you know, this is a wild, fantastical story in some ways. It's hard to believe. And I think I found sort of maybe a couple of negative experiences. Like one is that people would just be like, oh, my God, that's so crazy. Like, tell me. Like, it was like gossip. And I'm like, oh, no, this is my life. Um, and then the yeah. other one, I think some people did find it hard to believe. And they, they didn't understand sort of the ins and outs of like, well, why couldn't they get a helicopter to you straight away? Like, Because it's the middle of nowhere. Out, <laughs> that's it. And <laughs> apparently there's only two medical choppers in all of Western Australia, yeah. someone told me recently. Yeah. But, yeah, some people were just like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, was it really that serious then? And I'm yes. Like, yeah, yep. it was. <laughs> and it's so hard to sort of like be like, well, this is my experience and all I can do is tell you my experience and this is 100% what happened and I don't actually have to prove anything to you. No, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. <laughs> what do you feel – you learnt and what do you feel others can learn from your story that you've just told us? I guess, I mean, look, I wouldn't want that experience to go on anyone. So, no. yeah, I guess 
prepare as best you can. You know, mm -hmm. I am really grateful that we set up wilderness first aid and mm -hmm. we had a paramedic and we had lead guides that were experienced, but you know, still things do happen. So yeah, prep as much as you can try and control the uncontrollable. Reduce the risk. Reduce the, Reduce risk. the risk. Reduce the risk, yeah. Surround yourself with good people. I think having a good team that day of really talented people uh, was key to my survival, that we had a satellite phone, that we had snake bite kits. And when I said I need a compression bandage right now, they were like, yep, okay, and knew how to do that. Um, so surround yourself with the right people. And then for me, I think <laughs> it's been really cool to be like, you know, those 12 years of martial arts and my years doing backcountry guiding and snowboarding yep. around the world, all of that stuff contributed to me surviving that moment, that mental agility that it takes from doing seasons and setting up new systems. Because I think people will be like, oh, seasons, you know, it's not that hard. But like, you're going to a new country. And for myself, I would go to new countries, like went to South Korea by myself, mm. went to Japan by myself. Mm. And you make it work and you sort of set up your whole life all over again. You get quite mentally agile, I think. And those sort of things... Yeah, don't underestimate your past experiences and have some faith in yourself. And for me, it was really cool to see, yeah, all of that martial arts experience, all of that life experience, that time in the mountains, it really got me through in the end, thank God. I mean, you certainly know how to step out of a comfort zone, quite comfortable with stepping out of a comfort zone. We spoke to Michael Williams, Valentino Gasselli's coach on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. He's talking about courage and he said with fear and risk, for some people, risk is something as simple as ringing somebody, inviting them out on a date. For another True. person, it might be doing a, a, a triple cork, whatever you want to call it, in the half pipe. But they're all relative to how far out of your comfort zone you're prepared to go. Has this changed how far out of your comfort zone you're prepared to go? Ooh, I think initially it did, you know, because um, I wasn't really willing to put myself in harm's way for a little bit. Um, but at the same time, you know, risk is all about, yeah, what are you comfortable with and are you pushing those boundaries just gently each time so that a risky situation feels natural and comfortable again. And so I think, yes, I am a little bit more risk adverse now perhaps, but at the same time, like, you know, next week I'm going out with the girls and we're filming for Arcteryx and we're going to make a sick film in the Western faces. So <laughs> maybe not backed up as much as, not as much as my mum would like. Oh, okay. Well, I think that sounds like a really fun way to spend a weekend just quietly. Alex, Thank you. you're an absolute joy and inspiration in the Australian ski industry. You are a fantastic supporter of women within the industry and young girls within the industry. You show a lot of young girls what's possible. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story because it is very raw and very vulnerable to do so. So thank you for trusting us with the story of keeping and thriving in your life. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation and uh, likewise, you're an inspiration too. Thank you for those kind words. Thanks for listening to The Snow's Best Podcast. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe via your favourite podcast platform. Like at Miss Snow It All on socials and hit up the snowsbest.com website for everything you need to know snow.